Hi, and welcome to Conversations with Scientists. I'm Vivian Marks. We are all on the brink, hopefully, of reaching uh, some better population immunity because of the vaccine program. But the research doesn't stop because of the vaccines. I think that because we have this whole group of people who have long COVID, we need models that will help us understand what's going on there. Because, you know, giving someone another vaccine isn't going to stop their long COVID. This is a process that's now, you know, triggered by, but now secondary and independent of the actual virus. So we need models that, that are something other than a vaccine. Um, to continue to study this. And that's where I think uh, a, a lot of the current research is going because while we're not all vaccinated yet, we have the luxury of having many effective vaccines that eventually will get people very protected. But we still have a long way to go. That's Dr. Tarina Martinez talking about COVID-19. She's a field application scientist at Taconic Biosciences, which is a company that develops and sells mouse models for their research. You will hear more from her in this podcast. In my reporting, I speak with scientists around the world, and this podcast is a way to share more of what I find out. This podcast takes you into the science, and it's about the people doing the science. You can find some of my work, for example, in nature journals that are part of the nature portfolio. A lot of papers are published there. Those papers are written by working scientists and are about the latest aspects of their research. And a number of these journals offer science journalism. These pieces are done by science journalists like me. This podcast episode is one of several I'm producing on long COVID, which is this difficult diversity of symptoms that people experience after recovering from COVID-19. Scientists are working on what might be causing long COVID. I'm doing a story on long COVID for Nature Methods. Figuring out what causes long COVID is difficult, and some approaches involve modeling the disease in animals. Yes, that means experimenting on animals, which I know some people are opposed to. Indeed, animal experiments are uncomfortable to consider. But please give this podcast a listen. It might offer some aspects that you might not have heard yet about the value of doing ethically responsible research with animals that can potentially help people with long COVID. After recovering from COVID-19, people are, of course, grateful and relieved. They've survived a scary ordeal. But many people find that even months after their infection, they struggle with symptoms. And those symptoms can include difficulty breathing, muscle or joint pain, fatigue, heart palpitations. They might have sustained damage to their lungs, heart, kidneys. And they might experience what is called brain fog. When the symptoms are severe, the lives of many, many people get completely derailed. And it is upended the way work is done. Here's Tarina Martinez. It's obviously, you know, front of mind, you know, from on a personal level because it's affecting all of our work patterns. But uh, to your point, it has opened up new areas of research, but then also pressurized ongoing areas of research that, you know, also need to remain priorities, but difficult to uh, compete when, you know, when you've got this big distraction going on. COVID-19 has changed a lot about research in academic labs, at nonprofit research institutes, and at companies. It's not the new normal that's emerging, it's the new exceptional, she says. Obviously, we can all understand in a, say, in a clinical trial in oncology or heart disease, um, the patients have difficulty getting into the clinics or the at-risk patients. Uh, but in the research space, even when you take it back to the preclinical step, as you mentioned, if the researchers are having to practice social distancing in the lab, it just really changes the what's normally an extremely collaborative team approach 
Um, it requires a sharpening of, of prioritization, potentially a slowing down of, of progress. Um, but I think that uh, we're all working on, uh, I, I like to think of it as instead of the new normal, the new exceptional, trying to, to take the lessons that we're learning and, and really see where things have been streamlined and how we can you know, risk mitigate and uh, you know, apply some of these things long-term. And this new exceptional means a lot of time on Zoom. That's actually why I have my warm tea here, so that at the end of the day, if I start to get a little laryngitis, I can, uh, you know, soothe my my vocal cords. With COVID-19, research labs around the world were tracking viral spread and then trying to stem that spread, flatten the curve. And they were coping with the many, many severely ill people who were overwhelming hospitals. Often, there was little physicians could do to help patients, and people died in quarantined intensive care units. Family and friends were not allowed in due to infection risk. According to the data dashboard run by the Johns Hopkins University Coronavirus Resource Center, as of this podcast production, there have been over 3 million deaths worldwide attributed to COVID-19. The U.S. leads this sad tally with over 560,000 deaths. The number of people with long COVID is estimated to be in the millions, but there is no exact tally. Clinics are popping up to help people with their symptoms, but it's not clear yet what is causing the symptoms. This is a nascent field. Uh, I mean, the coronavirus, we feel like we've been living through it forever, but realistically, it's a, it's a short time span horizon. Um, what I think is key to long COVID is that it took uh, some, some several months of us experiencing COVID on a population basis to understand what it was, because what was grabbing the most attention um, was the fatal cases and the the you know the really acute organ failure, um, ventilator dependent cases, and it wasn't until people began to really appreciate that even mild cases, months later, um, people recovering from mild cases that didn't require hospitalization, had long term symptoms, and considering that they would you know get their COVID diagnosis recover, and then still abide by, you know, social distancing and all of the other regular rules of our shutdown society and economy, it wasn't likely that those symptoms were coming from other areas, other sources, other illnesses, because they, you know, were at home, got ill, stayed home and remained ill. <laughs> um, right. So I'd be- Weren't in a tropical area or, or, or right. someplace where we're right. traveling or exactly. got Lyme disease or, or something exactly. like that, right? So absent any exotic, you know, sort of case studies you'd see on House MD, the TV show, um, it was, I think that's what, what um, had allowed clini- clinicians to begin to realize that there was a subpopulation of patients who recovered and the uncanny um, observations that it could be anywhere from 10 to 30% of patients who recovered from, from COVID. Now, of course, there's some hand-waving there because uh, many people are asymptomatic carriers. People may have had a mild case and not had access to a test, so they don't have confirmation of it. Um, but we do know from other viruses uh, that viruses can trigger um, autoimmune components. And we're beginning to appreciate potential autoimmune contribution to the long COVID condition. Um, it's still very early days, but this is based and predicated on some observations that uh, people who have long COVID symptoms um, exhibit autoantibodies to things like interferon. And interferon is an important uh, cytokine 
uh, released factor. Uh, so cytokines are basically, if you think of neurotransmitters as the chemical messengers of neurons, cytokines are the chemical messengers of inflammation cells. And though that interferon um, is a very popular, it's one of the first antiviral responses you'll have, whether you're having an antiviral response to influenza, COVID, or you know, West Nile virus, any number of viruses, interferon will be involved. So the idea is that even in patients who have a mild case, um, they will have this raised interferon level long enough and the immune system is just out of whack. It's never seen this pathogen before. It's not really coordinating, you know, a really specific response. It's really just throwing anything and everything at the virus, which may be in certain cases of, of um, subpopulation uh, predisposes people to develop autoantibodies against the interferon. And anytime the immune system um, has an autoantibody approach, that means that it's recognizing self as foreign. And we can think of things like rheumatoid arthritis, type 1 diabetes as examples of autoimmune disease. And what seems to be happening, again, we need to put some resolution and sharpness to this picture, but it seems that um, for some reason, individuals with long COVID uh, will have this um, inappropriate autoimmune response long-term that is what's causing these symptoms of um, fatigue and uh, you know, joint pain or arthralgia um, you know, difficulty concentrating. These are actually symptoms that, that coalesce in other autoimmune diseases as well, which is another, you know, sort of dot that's being connected, um, to, to link this potentially to autoimmune mechanisms. Part of studying what long COVID is and isn't involves looking deeply at what the virus does to the body. Once inside the body, for example, when it is inhaled, SARS-CoV-2, the virus that causes COVID-19, uses a doorknob to get into cells. It locks onto a protein that is found on many human cells. It's called ACE2. When someone's exposed to SARS-CoV-2, the virus that causes COVID-19, um, it'll usually, of course, it's going to enter through respiratory, um, you know, through mouth or nose because it enters, you know, through aerosolization and then it gets into the respiratory tract. Um, there are receptors that the SARS-CoV-2 virus latches onto on cells and it just uses that as a Trojan horse way to get into the cell. So only certain cells have those receptors. It's called um, ACE2 receptor. Um, those are really high density in uh, the lungs the intestines, and on endothelial tissue, which is the tissue that lines blood vessels, and that's why the heart is also um, a target organ. The virus homes in on its target, these cells with the ACE2 receptor. The virus gets inside, takes over the cell, and uses it to further its own viral needs. So then the virus will use that receptor to get into the cells, hijack the cell's um, uh, nucleus uh, DNA machinery to make many, many copies of the virus. While the virus is inside the cell, the immune system has no idea what's going on. It's, the virus has to replicate many hundreds, millions, thousands of times, and then it ruptures the cell and dumps all that new virus into the tissue or the bloodstream, whatever's in the area, and then that process just continues to, to magnify. So the immune response will initially maybe see some of those unique um, lipid signatures or, you know, unique factors um, of, the, of the virus, just that says you are a virus. Um, and the immune system can, can, innate, can trigger that initial innate response with certain cytokines involved. If you have a robust early innate response, but one that's not over exuberant and wild, 
then that will trigger those cytokines will do two things. They will do things that are bad for the virus. And they'll also be a homing signal for your adaptive immune system to get in gear. It basically says there's something going on here. It gets that innate immune cell to migrate to the area. That way it can look at the pieces of the virus and get specific um, with its recognition of it. Okay. And then followed by, I guess, destruction, which would be the right. good outcome, right? Which right. which hasn't happened right. in so many cases, I see. Yes, okay. Right. So, but then, so the idea would be that in people who have a really quick and efficient innate immune response, those are the people who are likely the asymptomatic carriers, the ones with very mild cases, they get it and resolve. Um, in some people though, because we've never really seen this virus in its unique iteration, um, if it escapes that initial, if it evades that initial innate immune system and gets enough copies of itself generated, then the immune system kicks into overdrive. And that's where we get what we've, you've probably heard of cytokine storm. Um, that is when someone is very ill and their immune system has basically, you know, been duped initially. And now it's overcompensating by generating too high of a levels of cytokines so that that actually causes, um, like, you know, cell death, you, you get, you know, blood clots and organ damage and organ failure. Um, so really what, what happens in this virus, which is just so obnoxious, is that some people have it so mild, you don't even know. Some people have a mild case that the immune system does what it's supposed to, and they resolve it. Some of those who do that end up with long COVID later because there are little mechanisms of this autoimmunity that, that kicked in in the meantime. And then other people just don't get that initial immune response and just immediately go into that overdrive um, with cytokine storm. The overdrive, the cytokine storm, is bad news and difficult to treat. And COVID-19 in general has been very difficult to treat. And long COVID is hard to treat too. When you think about the symptoms, so the CDC lists the common symptoms. And this is, again, taking this subset of people who've recovered and have the long symptoms um, there is no, you know, one magic test that someone can take and say, you have long COVID. Um, what they have is this information of someone who previously had the infection, has cleared it, um, and now they have this sequela and clustering of symptoms. The common ones are fatigue, cough, shortness of breath, chest pain, and joint pain. But then uh, many people will also report muscle pain, heart palpitations, occasional fever, difficulty concentrating. But when you take that list of symptoms, which is many, and they are diverse, that is that could be many things. I mean, those same symptoms could also be, you know, chronic fatigue syndrome, Epstein-Barr virus. It could be, you know, all kinds of other other symptoms that, or, or sorry, um, diseases that that are autoimmune. What I think is really important is that now we're, as you mentioned, it's hard to diagnose and hard to treat autoimmune diseases. But we do have some tools. We have ways of suppressing the immune system. So we need to figure out what the right approach is for this. Um, which of the immunosuppressants that have been used for anything from lupus to rheumatoid arthritis, which one would be better? Because what you want to do is stop the inappropriate autoimmune response, but not shut down immunity in the time of a pandemic and when you need to fight other diseases. So that's where I think the clinical research um, really needs to concentrate. But coming back to preclinical research that would enable some of those mechanisms and, and sharpen the focus of the targets, this is where I think we need to really change some of our focus. Um, similar to how I mentioned with the human clinical population, the attention early days was the fair, in a fair way, the very sick, ill, severe patients. 
To study long COVID, labs need models. The current models are ones that have been used to study the acute course of the disease. Here's Tarina Martinez. Right now, the models that we have, the preclinical models, and we can speak more about the mouse model Taconic has, is a model that is uh, replicative of severe COVID. So the animals get sick very quickly. They they get extremely ill very quickly and, and you know, have a very severe outcome. I think we need to focus on more mild immune, uh, so more mild infection in order to get better information about what may be happening at the, at the um, organism level for long COVID. So you, it's going to be hard to study long COVID in a preclinical setting where you really can, you know, turn up and turn down certain things to investigate mechanisms and, and uh, really get specific in a reductionist way. Um, reductionist being good to answer a question with clarity. Uh, so I think we really do need to focus on um, finding model systems, whether it's, you know, changing the model system or changing the way uh, we expose them to the, the coronavirus to get uh, uh, subclinical, oh, sorry, sublethal infections to then study um, these effects with the autoimmune um, mechanisms. And then we can use the toolbox that we have used before to look at autoimmune um, uh, mechanisms. In order to shift focus to the more mild infection and to find out what underpins the symptoms in long COVID and to see what might be keeping the immune system in overdrive, labs need the right types of models. Their needs and choice will vary depending on the research question they want to get at. A lab might try to understand individual symptoms such as joint pain or chronic fatigue, or they might want to assess the immune system at different time points. But a typical lab mouse will not do for studying these questions because mice do not get COVID and do not get long COVID. This is the key. The reason why normal mice, like your normal field mouse or your normal research mouse, won't get sick from SARS-CoV-2 is because they have a different version of the ACE2 receptor. So all mammals have to have this ACE2 receptor. It's actually very important in regulating blood pressure, just as it's normal, normal job, it's day job. Um, but there is enough difference between the mouse version of ACE2 and the human version of ACE2 that mice, even if they inhale, um, you know, if, if they inhale um, coronavirus, SARS-CoV-2, because their receptor won't recognize it and bind it and allow it to get into the cells and replicate, they don't get infected. The current models, and there are different types, were mainly developed before SARS-CoV-2. So some of the models just took the normal mouse and used a a more of a a quick and dirty um, genetic approach called random transgenesis, where you insert the human gene and it just latches on where it can, and then it's expressed. So the current models usually, I'd say the vast majority of them use that mechanism, and that's the current model we have at Taconic. In this particular case, it has um, ubiquitous expression. So it's expressed in widely in many tissues. But we have in, in our pipeline, and there are one or two reports of, of models you know, across the globe, but again, it's very difficult to access them, where you use a targeted genetic approach and you knock out the mouse version and you pop in the human version in its place. Um, and so that would be... Uh, you know, a mechanism that would eliminate the mouse version of the ACE2 and then have just the human. There are pros and cons to both. There are different types of mouse models, also models in the making. In Taconic's current mouse model for COVID, the mouse has the mouse and human ACE2 receptor on its cells, but it is otherwise a mouse with the murine, the mouse's immune system. 
it doesn't have the human immune system. Really, the reason why the mouse is getting ill is because it has the human ACE2 receptor and then its immune system kicks in. So this mouse model is not quite responding the way people do. It has the human ACE2 gene and its own immune system. For cancer research, there are mouse models that have some aspects of the human immune system. We start first by basically using a bunch of different genetic tools to knock out the mouse immune system. And then that lets us replace parts of that mouse immune system with a human immune system. But for that model to be sensitive to COVID, you would have to have that, that mouse that has no mouse immune system and the human ACE2 gene and then come back with hematopoietic stem cells from a human so that the human immune system reconstitutes. I think that that's another direction the research is going because that's where we need to be. So we've now made, and when I say iterative, I don't mean tiny baby steps. You can have iteration that's, you know, a moonshot. We have made iterative progress in putting the human ACE2 receptor into the mouse. Now we need to start understanding more the human immune system. So what we're trying to do now is take some of the dots that we're seeing clinically in humans, take the human receptor that's now in the mouse. Now it's sensitive to the human virus, but eventually if we can integrate the human immune system in the mouse, we can really open up the opportunity for research. So the current mouse model for COVID is not going to quite work for studying the intricacies of long COVID. But labs and companies like Taconic are working on ways to change the model. The new model might, for example, have fewer ACE2 receptors. Mainly, COVID-19 needs to not take a deadly course as it does in people who have a severe case of COVID-19. Right now, though, the current model is that, this, and it could come down to the density of the receptor, um, that it, it's so sensitive, it, it's a very short course. It's a very acute, um, almost lethal course. So right now we're working on models that have a different version of the uh, same human receptor, but less of it, or um, basically uh, create models that are sublethal so that we can study long COVID. Developing that kind of model takes time and it will involve collaboration with academic labs. That was the case with Taconic's current mouse model used to study COVID. The particular model that we have currently available um, commercially is uh, actually in licensed from a group at University of Texas Medical Branch in Galveston. They developed this model back in the early 2000s against SARS-CoV-1, the first coronavirus. It just is a, is a trick of biology that both the SARS-CoV-1 and SARS-CoV-2 use the same ACE2 receptor. So that's actually why we were able to first get the vaccines out so quickly, because they had we had all of the five, six, seven years of preclinical research from the first SARS, and we were able to start you know, ahead in the process. So that's the model we have, but we are aware that that there's so much more that needs to be asked. And some of those specific questions we've talked about now, the long COVID, other mechanisms, those need more um, specific models. And we're working on making those de novo in-house. Um, we have several in our pipeline. Um, we won't know until we get them um, developed and tested, which ones will be relevant for which purposes and, and what um, specific questions. All mouse models, including those new ones that have a less deadly course of COVID-19, need to be tested, just as the ones currently in use have been. Of course, a mouse is not a person. And in order to understand long COVID, labs have to assess if the mouse with the human ACE2 receptor on its cells has drastically changed in any way. From everything that we can tell, um, there is no change to the animal until you give it SARS-CoV-2 and then it's sensitive. 
but it doesn't change its blood pressure. It doesn't change its growth and reproduction. It seems healthy and normal in, in every other grossly observable way. But now it's sensitive to, to the SARS-CoV-2 that has been affecting humans, but previously would not have been affecting mice. And it, there, it depends because you'll, there are times when you want to have, when it's been advantageous to um, just have the human version. Um, there are times when it's you know benign. It doesn't matter if it has both. Um, there may be times where you might want to have both, and there may be times where you just want to have mouse. So for example, um, you, we've heard a lot about the variants um, and the, the mutations that this virus continues to undergo. Um, there could be times where the mutations in the virus actually occur at such a, a rate or such a level of specificity that it can now infect a mouse. Because wow. it all comes down to this, this lock and key approach of the piece on the spike protein of the SARS-CoV-2 that is recognized by the ACE2 receptor. And if you change, if you know, if the virus mutates enough, that, you know, that lock and key might fit the mouse version. So we are, um, we, the collective we in the research community are uh, really attentive to what's happening at the structural level um, for the virus, the variants, and as the virus continues to mutate, and then um, what models would be the best to study um, the different versions. The virus doesn't exactly sit still and wait for labs to study it. The virus mutates and evolves, new variants pop up. The variants might, for example, make the virus more transmissible between people, and it might begin to infect mice when an earlier variant was not infectious in mice. Those studies are still very, very early days. People are still focusing their um, studies on the mice that have the human ACE2 receptor because we know that that's you know, a more tried and true mechanism. But um, I think that, that we do need to be attentive to the idea that as these, you know, the, the so-called South African or UK variants um, when we talk about those variants, it doesn't mean it has one mutation. It has probably five, six, or eight, you know, different mutations that have just, just kind of, you know, been isolated into that variant. So then we have to use another reductionist system to try to understand which of those particular mutations is causing a structural change or a communicability change or a stability of the virus change or an ability to recognize mouse ACE2. Any, I mean, the variables begin to get mind boggling, but, okay. um, but we, you know, people are, you know, the bright minds are paying attention to it. And I think we will will continue to learn so much more in the, in the coming weeks and months. Tarina Martinez and her colleagues are regularly approached by labs that have developed mouse models on their own. They would then like to hand off the work to a company that will tend to developing mouse models more fully. And then when it comes to testing, they would need help anyway, because most labs do not have access to high security facilities needed for work with SARS-CoV-2. They want to focus on the research. Um, they would let, rather let us focus on the logistics of, um, of large scale, you know, uh, production and, and shipping distributions. They don't have the luxury of, of a global shipment footprint like we do. Um, so it's it's a partnership. Um, and, and yes, Taconic has exclusivity for, for this particular model. Um, and then for the ones we're making, of course, you know, we would also have exclusivity there. But we would we would um, what's great about this this partnership is that you know we don't have in our own labs, of course, we don't have that biosafety level three capacity. We can't do those tests ourselves. We need to work with partners too. And that's where something like this type of partnership is, you know, very mutually beneficial um, because they can bring the infectious disease expertise and we can bring the mouse expertise and meet in the middle. In addition to the many scientific and technical aspects, there are also administrative ones. A material transfer agreement or MTA is often needed when academic labs want to share reagents or models. 
And that can take a long time to set up, especially with COVID, but in science more generally too. And labs don't want any time lost. The, the ecosystem of, of animal model generation and distribution is, um, is a broad spectrum. So I would say if we took um, the Taconic commercial catalog, which is several thousand different types of models, um, some of those were made um, in-house with Taconic. Some of those were made in partnership with maybe a disease foundation that had interest in a certain disease or model. Um, and other times, it's this what version we're talking about here, where an academic group made it on their own, and then they said, okay, this is valuable, but you know, I'm, you know, my my setup is like Geppetto's workshop. I need something more along the lines of a Nike factory. So how can we work together? So we we have um, models in our catalog that bridge that entire spectrum, and that continues to be our strategy for developing novel models because we're completely aware that that our internal R and D program is probably not going to capture all of the need. Um, we want to be able to make sure that that landscape is widely assessed and that the gaps are identified by the research community, by the end users, and by the brightest minds in the world. So that requires a more bottom-up um, mechanism. The um, availability question is key because someone could have the best model in the world, but if it's not available to the research community for replication and for um, easy access, if it takes you 10 months to sign an MTA, then that really slows down the rate of science. Um, by getting it into the public domain quickly, um, it allows the research to happen much faster. Taconic works with a number of different labs. Tarina Martinez has seen COVID-19 shift priorities in labs because scientists want to contribute what they can to studying COVID. I think it's it's changed people's um, philosophies in two ways. One is um, research groups who previously were studying mechanisms, so going back to cytokines and, and what they do and the diversity of the immune system. And we've talked about its role in infectious disease. We've talked about its role in autoimmunity. Those cytokines, there are so many of them, dozens of them. And the relative level and, and neighborhood of where they are is what changes you know, everything um, with the outcomes. So people have pivoted their research programs. They might've been studying a specific um, uh, cytokine like TNF-alpha or IL-6 and its role in, you know, chemotherapy-resistant tumors because it has a role there. Um, and now they've, they're taking their early-stage drug and pivoting that to, to COVID. So we've seen a lot of pivots. Um, we have seen a lot of academic researchers, um, to your point, realize that there's a funding opportunity here and the, the timelines have been accelerated. They've not been dumbed down, but they've just been accelerated for grant review and for getting money out the door. Um, so, so we have um, engaged with academic researchers for that. One of the rate limiting steps though, is um, the ability to do those, um, those dangerous and, and tricky infection um, paradigms that requires a biosafety level three facility. So a lot of universities don't have access to that. So we, they come to us to try to, you know, do some matchmaking, do some, you know, do some help with some collaborations and help with finding research organizations, contract research organizations, or other groups who can collaboratively um, work on their drug asset. But, you know, they have everything they need except the, you know, lab in the moon suits to get it done. As of right now, in the spring of 2021, vaccines are being rolled out, and that could change the transmission dynamics of SARS-CoV-2. And it will hopefully mean that fewer people become severely ill with COVID-19. We are all on the brink, hopefully, of reaching uh, some better population immunity because of the vaccine program. But the research doesn't stop because of the vaccines. I think that because we have this whole group of people who have long COVID, 
We need models that'll help us understand what's going on there. Because, you know, giving someone another vaccine isn't going to stop their long COVID. This is a process that's now, you know, triggered by, but now secondary and independent of the actual virus. So we need models that, that are something other than a vaccine um, to continue to study this. And that's where I think uh, a, a lot of the current research is going because while we're not all vaccinated yet, we have the luxury of having many effective vaccines that eventually will get people very protected. But we still have a long way to go. That was Conversations with Scientists. Today's episode was with Dr. Tarina Martinez, field application scientist at Taconic Biosciences. And I'd like to say thank you to Ginny Somers, who set up this conversation. And I also just wanted to say, because there's confusion about these things, sometimes Taconic did not pay to be in this podcast. This is independent journalism produced by me in my living room. I'm Vivian Marks. Thanks for listening. Mm-hmm.